Well, good morning. It is a good morning that we can be together here as our brothers and sisters are gathered together around the world. I'm thankful for those opportunities for them, but this is no better place that you could be this morning than to be here assembled with the saints, and we're thankful for the opportunity that we've already enjoyed together and that lies before us in the next few moments. If you've got your Bibles, either electronically, of course, or on paper, you can be turning to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This is a great place, and we are thankful that you are here this morning, especially to all of our visitors. We're thankful that you have come our way. By the preacher count, Don Ziegler thought he had the inside track on the visitor, most visitors sticker for the day, but leave it to Catherine Isom to swipe him as she does to many of us. And of course, kindness and happiness and laughter, she takes a lot of us out with her shine and how much we love her. Uh, but we're thankful to all of our visitors that you have come our way this day and that we could worship together this morning. Uh, we hope that you can be back with us again tonight, obviously, because we will be worshiping together and studying again, but certainly we look forward to our time after services, especially as we put together the eternity, uh, eternity bracelets and look forward to sending those down to Haiti, but also as well as we honor our brother Bill and look forward to our time of fellowship together there. But this morning, we've got lots of information to get to, so off we go. In 1931, in Innsbruck, Austria, a professor by the name of Theodore Ersman and his assistant and student, Ivan Kohler, conducted what would become known as the Innsbruck Goggle exper uh, Experiment. I'd be careful with that in today's world. I don't think Google was a word then, but Google and Goggle are very close. But it was the Innsbruck Goggle Experiment. Now that picture may be a little hard to see there, but the professor made Kohler wear a pair of hand-engineered goggles. And inside those goggles, specially arranged mirrors flipped the light that would reach Kohler's eyes, the top becoming the bottom, and the bottom top. Now at first, as anybody would, you would imagine, Kohler stumbled wildly when trying to grasp an object that was held out to him when he tried to navigate around a chair or walk down a flight of stairs. In a simple fencing game, you know, fencing with sabers that, uh, that people do, in a simple fencing game with sticks, Kohler would raise his stick high when attacked low, and he would go low when he was attacked high. Holding a teacup out to be filled, he would turn the cup upside down the instant he saw water apparently pouring upward. The sight of smoke rising from a match or a helium balloon bobbing on a string could trigger an instant change in his sense of which direction was up and which was down. But over the next week, from the beginning of the experiment, Kohler found himself adapting in fits and starts and then a little more consistently to the sights that he would see while wearing these goggles. After 10 days... Ten days, he had become so accustomed to the invariably upside-down world that paradoxically and happily, everything seemed to him normal and right-side up. Kohler could do everyday activities in public perfectly well. He could walk along a crowded sidewalk. He could even ride a bicycle wearing these goggles. Now, it's said in the description of the experiment that passers-by on the street did sort of give him a funny look because his eyewear, of course the man on the left there, uh, looked from the outside a little unfashionable. They uns were unsure what he was doing, but at the same time, he could do these things. It's an amazing concept to consider the idea of an upside-down world. And of course, especially an upside-down world when most in the world are going with what we would seem to be a correct-side-up world. This professor, Erzman, asked his student to live in an upside-down world. 
The gospel according to Luke begins in verse number one or chapter one in verse number one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us or fulfilled among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You see, Luke tells this fellow, Theophilus, that he is writing so that Theophilus may be certain of the things that he has heard and been taught. If Theophilus was keeping up with the accounts that were going on around him of this man who called himself the Son of God, this Jesus of Nazareth, there's a good chance there might have been some confusion in his brain, similar to this experiment that we've already talked about. There might have been some head scratching because some of the things that this man was teaching didn't quite add up to what we would think to be normal. They didn't quite make sense. You might consider them backwards. You might consider them upside down. Luke records for us one of the most beautiful accounts of the life of Christ. But there is zero doubt as you read through the gospel according to Luke of the message that Christ is bringing. It involves living, of course without the fashionable goggles, but living in an upside down world. Now as we've mentioned before, our young people have just finished a several month study of the book of Luke. We've covered almost all of it as a group. We've had a chapter read aloud. Then we've covered 15 or 25 questions over that chapter. Last Sunday, they took a test. The older ones were asked 100 questions. The younger ones were asked 60 questions. And they will continue to spend the next month and a half studying the book of Luke in preparation for the Bible Bowl competition at the last leaders convention on April 11th. And I believe, and I think that you would agree, that it would be beneficial for us to study Luke as a congregation. It certainly helps them as they continue to study and prepare, but it would help all of us if we would take just a few services and remind ourselves of several different points from this great gospel account. Now we're going to cover several of the major themes and some of the great chapters in the book of Luke over the next four Sunday mornings, including today. And on Sunday nights, we're going to take a look at several different lessons. We're going to take a look at another Lost in the Credits lesson. Some of you recall those from a year or so ago, looking at people who might be considered lost in the credits of the Bible. We're going to even do a question and answer session one night. Of course, I'm going to provide the questions ahead of time, so no need. But uh, but some question and answers, because it's interesting as you look through Luke, you see something, you say, I always thought about that. One in particular that we'll touch on very briefly, Luke describes for us the thief on the cross. If you ever had a discussion with someone, many people always ask, well, what about the thief on the cross? So we'll take a look at that on one Sunday night. But to begin our series this morning, I think we would do well to take an overview of this book as we begin this month-long study of some of the major parts of Luke's account. First of all, let's begin by asking a very important question, who was Luke? You kind of maybe have an idea formed in your mind already, but who was Luke? Three points. Number one, Luke was likely the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. Now, we don't have a resume. We don't have a biographical sketch. We don't have a a notebook that we can open and just see all about Luke. But we can surmise a few things. First of all, one of the things that we can surmise about him being likely the only Gentile writer comes from the Bible. If you've got your Bible, look in Colossians chapter 4. 
Colossians chapter 4 in verses 7 through 15. In this section of the book of Colossians, Paul is giving some greetings. As he often does, he sends some greetings from people that he is familiar with or working with or traveling with. And so we notice in verse number, beginning in verse number 7, he lists some people. And in verse number 11, he says, These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision." They have proved to be a comfort to me. Now, if you know anything about Bible history, you understand the nature of circumcision and its purpose at one time. That was how you would identify those who were Jews. And so as Paul seems to make a a break here, he gives a list of people. And you look in verses 7 through 10 and even 11 of people who Paul might be saying are of the circumcision. You go down to verse number 14, you see Luke's name. Maybe the separation is because he was a Gentile. There's a couple of other things that we can look at to try to understand this point. Number one, his name is Greek. I know that seems kind of odd sometimes, but if you have lived in the South any number of years, you hear some names and you say, they must be from the South. And so we understand through going through history that Luke was primarily a Greek name. His writing style is distinctively Greek. I can't proclaim to know much about that or give you the ins and outs of that, but His writing style from those Greek scholars that we can learn from seems to be Greek or we would call him a Gentile. While we're talking about him being a writer for just a moment, a couple of interesting points. The book of Luke or the gospel according to Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. We're familiar, of course, with Psalms and how long the Psalms can be. But Luke is the longest book of the New Testament. And we're going to come back to Luke's writings at the end. But if you take what we believe Luke to have written, he wrote 52 chapters. I heard one writer say a third of the New Testament. I heard another writer say a quarter of the New Testament. But either way, oftentimes we think Paul of writing the most. But Luke was very close, if not even surpassing Paul, when it comes to how much of the New Testament is attributed to him. Number two, and this is not in your outline if you've got your bulletin in front of you, but I would submit to you he was smart. Now, that's not a knock against anyone else. I'm not trying to say that everyone else who wrote was dumb or anything like that. But we can surmise that he was smart. He was very intelligent. If you're still there in Colossians chapter 4, you know in verse number 14 that Luke is defined or described as Luke, the beloved physician. And so we think about doctors and doctors and all the schooling that they have to go to, depending, no matter really, actually, excuse me, but no matter the type of doctor they may become, there's a lot of schooling involved. And so we oftentimes, of course, associate our doctors with being very intelligent, very smart people. When you think about the writing of Luke, this was something that I learned in particular doing this study. Luke actually uses 55, 55 words that are found nowhere else in the New Testament. 55 words found nowhere else in the New Testament. And of course, being the beloved physician, Luke, I don't think he's showing off per se. He's being guided by the Holy Spirit, of course, as he is writing. But he presents sometimes a physician's mindset in the things that he writes. He gives us a deeper description. You may not have time to turn to all of them, but if you're making notes, you might jot them down. In Luke chapter 4, in verse number 38, he describes a person having a high fever. A high fever. Not just a fever, but a high fever. In Luke chapter 5, in verse number 12, he describes someone who is full of leprosy. Not just having leprosy, not just being leprous, but full of leprosy because it's 
possible that in his eyes he can look at a person and tell that they have a high fever, that they are full of leprosy. Perhaps the two maybe most famous accounts to help us describe Luke's physician type of mindset. The first one is in Luke chapter 22 and verse number 44, where Luke describes that Jesus, as he is praying in the garden, prays more earnestly and what? His sweat becomes like great drops of blood. Now, I kind of went down the Google rabbit hole of that even last night doing research and finding all these things. But, but many doctors will tell you there can be things that happen where that's a physical possibility. But because he is in stress, he's praying more earnestly. Luke, the physician, can record for us that this is something that is happening to him. And then we go further in chapter 22 in verses 50 through 51, and you see the account of the servant's ear being cut off. Now, Matthew and Mark both say there is a, a person and their ear is cut off. John describes that it is the right ear, but Luke describes that it is the right ear that Jesus then heals. A physician who can appreciate what is being done, the miracle that is taking place right in front of him. I don't think it means that we need to look at Luke in any more particular way than any other scripture, but Luke appears to be a very intelligent or a smart man. And then number three, he was not an apostle, but he was, many people considering, consider him to be a traveling companion with Paul. The name Luke is mentioned three places in the New Testament. We've already looked at one, that is Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. The second one, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11. Paul would say, only Luke is with me. And then the third is in Philemon. Philemon verse number 24. Luke is describing people again. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristocrus, Demas, Luke. My fellow laborers. That's the only three places the name of Luke is mentioned, but we can understand that he was a traveling companion of Paul. Now, I promise you we're going to come back and talk about his second writing, and we're going to do that in a few moments at the end of our lesson. But one of the other things that reminds us of him being a companion with Paul is what is called the we, we passages in the book of Acts. We don't have time to look at all of them, but Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 21 and Acts chapter 27 are all places where the writer talks about we being with Paul or something that Paul is doing and we are doing it or we or or we are there or we are traveling. So he was not an apostle, but he was a traveling companion with Paul. So now we know a little bit better maybe about who Luke was from surmising some things from Scripture. But let's look, number two, at some of the themes of the Gospel of Luke. Themes. And I say the Gospel of Luke. I hope you understand that as a bit of a, a tendency for me. It is the Gospel according to Luke. Of course, it is the Gospel of Jesus. But the first one we might notice is the, the Gospel according to Luke is the Gospel of Outcasts. The gospel of outcasts. We're going to list seven of these very quickly if you're making notes. Number one, the Gentiles. This is a Gentile writing to a Gentile. Luke, a Gentile writing to Theophilus, a Gentile. In Luke chapter 3, an interesting note that we see is the genealogy of Christ. And as you go through that and you come to the very end, it is mentioned that he is the son of Seth, the son of Adam. And of course, interestingly enough, they are the son of God. But Luke, as a Gentile writing to a Gentile, is able to trace back to a common ancestor in Adam. 
So this is a gospel for the Gentiles who are outcasts. Number two, thinking of outcast women were outcasts, right? Not to, to downgrade women today, but just rightfully so. When we think back, they were not regarded as highly. That's what history tends to bear out. But at the same time, as we read the gospel account, women are mentioned multiple times. Chapter 4, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Chapter 8, in a very interesting passage, it says that certain women were with him, were with Jesus, and they provided for him with their substance. They're helping Jesus. These women are involved in the ministry of Jesus. Chapter 10, we read about the story of Mary and Martha. Chapter 13, we read about a woman who had a spirit of infirmity who was made well. Chapter 18, a parable about the persistent widow. Chapter 21, the parable about the widow who had two mites. So women are, are sort of featured prominently in some ways, even though they would be not regarded very highly when it comes to history at that time. A gospel of the outcast, number three, the poor. We think about one of the most famous stories in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is described as a beggar full of sores who is laid at the gate. He is going to be a poor person. You recall in Luke chapter 14 and verse number 13, there is the the parable or the story of the wedding feast. And Jesus talks about going out and finding the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. So it's a gospel for outcasts, a gospel for the poor. It's also a gospel for the Samaritans. The Samaritans we know were considered a half-breed. If you pass by them, you would pass by on the other side. You would turn your nose up. You would not want to talk to them. But in chapter 10, a Samaritan is the hero of a parable. Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan and the Samaritan becomes the hero. A parable, or excuse me, a gospel of the outcast. What about the harlots? Luke chapter 7. You remember this story? A woman in the city. The text described her as a sinner. So we don't know for sure if she was a harlot, but many people feel that's probably what her occupation was. She was a harlot. Many believed her to be that. She comes in. She has an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. She washes the feet of Jesus with her tears. She wipes them with her hair. Luke includes all of this to remind us of the gospel for the outcast. A couple of more. What about the tax collectors? Maybe even worse than the Samaritans, depending on who you talk to. But the tax collectors in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 27, Levi, Matthew, is found where? In the tax office. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Luke chapter 19, another favorite character from the gospel according to Luke, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but Zacchaeus also was the chief tax collector. And then finally, and maybe first and foremost in a sense, it was the gospel for sinners. In Luke chapter 15, which we may talk about in a couple of weeks, maybe one of the great chapters of the Bible, the lost chapter, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the prodigal son, we know them all very well. The chapter begins in verse number one. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, on the other hand, are complaining and they're saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. What kind of guy is this? Well, it's a gospel for the outcasts, a gospel for sinners. We might also say it's the gospel of prayer. Luke chapter 18, in two different places, Luke 18, 1 through 8 is the parable of the persistent widow. What's that story getting at? The judge says, fine, leave me alone and I'll do what you want because she is persistent. 
similar as we should be in our prayer life. Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 through 14, back to back, we read about the Pharisee, two men, and the tax collector who are praying. One who is standing there with his arms up, getting all the glory that he can, and one who seems to be on the ground, on his knees, beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But not only do we read about it through these two parables, but also we read more in Luke, probably, about the prayer life of Jesus than anywhere else. Seven times, by my count, seven times he is mentioned as praying. He's mentioned in Luke chapter 6 as praying before choosing the twelve. You ever prayed before you've done something important? You ever prayed before you've entered into a big decision? He's praying and then he's going to choose the twelve in Luke chapter 6. And then, of course, we've already mentioned Luke chapter 22 that is sweat becomes like great drops of blood, praying more earnestly, stressed out to the max, knowing what is about to come, and he's praying. We won't list all the other passages, but at least seven times we learn about the prayer life of Jesus. Some people call it the gospel of prayer. And then number three, and this is where we get our title from, and we'll come back to this multiple times in this month, but it's the gospel of the upside-down kingdom. Now, this is not only a Luke thing, of course. This is a Jesus thing, right? Luke was going to record it, but this is what the message that Jesus is bringing. In Luke chapter 5, in verse number 10, he tells those who they've been on the boat, right, and they're catching fish, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Most of us would have been scratching our head. We can't pick up people in these nets. What are you talking about catching men? In Luke chapter 6, and this may be what we cover next Sunday, but Luke chapter 6, in verse number 20, poor if you're poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Not the rich, but the poor. Verse 21, if you are hungry, you can be filled. If you weep, you will laugh. This is a reversal of our value systems. The people are not going to understand this idea that you are to love your enemies. That you, if you want to be a, a great, you need to be a servant. Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. Most people say, I want to get all that I can. But Jesus is saying, if you do that, you'll be in danger. If you're trying to accumulate wealth here upon this earth, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53, he says, I came not to unite. That's the message of the world today, right? We need to be unified and we need to all be one and we just need to love one another. Jesus says, I didn't come to unite. I came to bring division. Doesn't make sense. It's upside down. Luke chapter 13 and verse number 30, the last who will be first and the first who will be last. Chapter 14 and verse number 11, whoever exalts himself will be the one who is humbled. If you want to be exalted, then you need to humble yourself first. It doesn't make sense in our minds. It doesn't compute. Luke chapter 18, 15 through 17, the children will inherit the kingdom of God. Children are supposed to know their place, right? They're supposed to be silent, supposed to be seen, not heard. It's true, but children will inherit the kingdom of God. And again, in chapter 22, in verse number 26, the greatest will be the servant. Jesus says, I came to serve. It's an upside down kingdom. We have to look at things differently than everyone else did does. And that's hard sometimes. Maybe we need goggles sometimes to wear to remind ourselves of what we're supposed to be doing. But this is the kingdom that Jesus came preaching. But then finally this morning, the, when we think about the upside down kingdom, Luke is actually part one, or excuse me, that's a mistake on the screen there. I typed it incorrectly. Part one of a two volume set. 
If you're making notes in your bulletin, it is actually part one of a two-volume set. So if you've got your Bibles, let's look at Luke chapter 1 again. And if you're turning there, you might can mark Acts chapter 1 because we're going to go back and forth here for just a moment. In Luke chapter 1, we see, as we read already together, that Luke is addressed to, oh, the most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 3. But you go over to Acts chapter 1 and verse number 1, and the writer of Acts says, The former account I made to you, O Theophilus, there's that name again, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The writer seems to say, Hey Theophilus, I wrote to you once, describing these things that Jesus began both to do and teach, but now here's some more. Here's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And it's also interesting as well, if you've got your Bible there, look at the ending of Luke. Turn over to Luke chapter 24 for just a moment. Because as we get to the ending of Luke, in verses 44 through 53, the end of Luke chapter 24, Luke records for us that Jesus is saying that he came to preach repentance and remission of sins. That it was to be preached in his name to all nations, begin, nations, beginning where? Jesus says in Luke 24, at Jerusalem, and behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. And he tells them, but tarry, wait, stay in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. We go over to Acts chapter 1, and what are they doing? They're waiting they're in Jerusalem. They're following his instructions at the end of Luke chapter 24. And they're going to be gathered there. It's 11 until we get further in chapter 1 and Matthias is chosen. Then there are 12 again who are waiting for Jesus. They're going to follow the instructions that he has given. Until they are endued with power from on high. Which Luke, who also wrote Acts, is going to record for us in Acts chapter 2. And perhaps the most interesting thing to me, and this is kind of just Joel's two cents for you today. But if you've got your Bible, look in Acts chapter 17 in verse number 6. This is Joel's two cents because the gospel according to Luke never once uses the term upside down. All right, It's not used in Luke. The idea is there that things are backwards. The greatest shall be the least. Least shall be the greatest. We got that. But it's not used in Luke. But if you've ever read Acts chapter 17 in verses 5 through 9 particularly verse number six, we read about the assault of those who are trying to squash this rebellion, as they might call it, squash these people who are preaching the name of Jesus, and they're assaulting Jason's house. And in verse number six, they come, and they don't find the apostles there, these men they're looking for, but they drag Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city crying. And what are they saying? How are they going to describe these people as those who have turned the world upside down? I can't tell you it's, it's meant by inspiration. I can't tell you this is some kind of nugget that got God hid in there. But it's very interesting to me. Even though Luke doesn't use it in the gospel according to Luke. That we come to Acts and Luke is recording these things that are occurring. And he uses the term that these people are turning the world upside down. That's the kingdom that we are called to. That's the manifesto. The kingdom that Christ preached in the gospel according to Luke. And all the words that he uttered. From our original point, this is never actually used, but it is used here in speaking of the assault on Jason's house. Life in an upside-down world. The lady on the screen now is Bojana Danilovic. Bojana Danilovic. She's a 35-year-old, or at least at this time, I think now, 35-year-old Serbian. She's been diagnosed with spatial orientation phenomenon. 
If you can make out on the screen there, that newspaper is upside down because she sees things upside down without any goggles. And doctors have studied her and they've done tests and they've determined that this is the way that she sees things. In fact, the way the story goes, as much as I can find it, in her house is a TV sitting right side up and a TV sitting upside down because she sees things upside down down. And her office at work, her computer screen and her keyboard are all made specifically so that she can use them upside down. Life in an upside down world. Christ came to this earth to call us to a life that is upside down. It's backwards. It's totally and completely against everything that the world would tell you you need to be, the way that you're to do things, the way that you're to live. Everyone's going to say, do it like this. Christ is saying you need to do it the opposite. An upside down world. There's one other common description of the book of Luke, and I didn't include in our notes this morning, but it's that it is the gospel of repentance. We're familiar with Luke chapter 13 and verse number three. And again, in verse number five, Jesus says very simply, repent or perish, repent or perish. But we know as well in Luke chapter 24 and verses 46 and 47 that we just looked at that he came to preach repentance for the remission of sins. It's the gospel of repentance. So the question for you this morning is, would you repent? Would you become a child of God by not only repenting, but confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, being baptized for the remission of your sins so that the Lord can add you to his church? You can begin to live in this upside down way. And by the way, go back to the Innsbruck goggle experiment. It's kind of tough. It's kind of tough sometimes because you're looking at everyone else and they're doing one thing, but you know you're supposed to be doing something different. And so you might become a Christian this morning, and we'll be singing in a moment to encourage that you would do just that. But it's hard to remain faithful. You feel like the goggles are off and everything's normal. We become a comfort. Uh, We become comfortable in the world that we live in. But let us not forget that we are to remain faithful to Christ, and we are to remain faithful unto death, continuing to walk in the light. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've done, in times past, you've become a Christian, but you stand in need of coming back to him. Through confession, repentance, and prayer, we're thankful for God's second law of pardon. Appreciate Don leading singing as always. He selected a song this morning with heaven's invitation stated as, Are you washed in the blood? Whether you need to become a Christian this morning or come back to him, we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.